Rock and Roll's Greatest Failure. Call Baby That's Really Me by John Otway. Read by John Otway. Call Baby That's Really Me. Chapter 11. The next move came because of the lack of instant fame from the single. John was baffled. What does it take to achieve success, he thought, and went into a short period of soul-searching and self-analysis. For most people, looking inward is a therapeutic device which helps them see where they have gone awry in the past and apply those lessons to make their lives richer and more rewarding in the future. For people like Otway, looking inwards is a highly dangerous process, and the results of such meditation can usually be summed up in one word. Expensive. I think I should make a film, he announced one night in the Derby Arms. My talent is basically visual, and my art comes down to the charismatic quality of my live show. You mean that a lot of people laugh when you throw yourself around the stage? Chris asked. Yes. John replied. Look, if I can achieve what I've just achieved by making a record, think of what can be achieved and how much can be gained from making a film. Sadly, no one was there to point out that making a record he had achieved a debt of £300 and on making a film he could gain a debt considerably larger. Oh, well, he would probably not have listened anyway. He had his heart set on the film and in these situations he's stubborn. He went in search of a film director and was introduced to Jeff Husson. Yes, said Jeff, I'll do it, but it will be costly to do it properly. I could do a cheaper film for you, but you wouldn't be able to use it for broadcast on television. It would still look good, though, and show what you can do. Otway was adamant. He needed to be on TV if he was to be a household name. Whatever film he made, it had to be made for the airwaves. His attitude towards money was simple. He was destined to be a star, and when he was, he would have lots and lots of it. Why care if he got into debt now? Sooner or later, he would be able to pay off everything he owed. The people who lent him money would eventually be pleased they had, because he would be generous to those who had helped him on this rocky road to fame. He also knew that there was no way that he could raise the whole amount necessary to make this epic in one go. What he would do was raise the finance stage by stage as it was required. Chris France was the obvious first move. It was suggested that the debt should be rounded up to £500 because that's an easy figure to remember and the extra £200 would pay for the initial film, the lights and the hire of the hall. Jeff Hassan was a professional film director and as such had never worked with someone like Hotway before. John played the two P. Townsend productions he wished to mime to, and Jeff went away to make a shooting script. Jeff had worked on many film projects before, and could be forgiven for thinking that what his star wanted was something that made him look as good as possible. What John had failed to get across to his new director was that he wanted a film that captured what he did. To give the film some atmosphere, it had been decided to add a small live audience which could easily be found in the Derby Arms. But there was a problem. Both Patricia and Pauline were more than willing to come and help John out. John felt, quite accurately, 
that Pauline would be the most impressed watching him work for the first time in front of the cameras and so invited her along. I know this is hard to understand, John said to Patricia, but I'm going to be so nervous on the day and you know how I worry about you. It would make it easier for me if I could just concentrate on what I'm doing. You will get to see the finished film though. John arrived early for his first and only day on set. He was, after all, both producer and star in his own epic. The film was to be shot on the stage of the Borough Assembly Hall, the scene of some of Otway's early triumphs at the Friars Club. The two numbers to be filmed were Misty Mountain and If I Did. Most of the day went something like this. So which way do I do the somersault with the guitar? Otway asked the director. Ah, somersault with the guitar? Um, yes, well, you can do that if you like. But as we're doing a close-up of your face, I don't think the camera's going to catch that. Uh, Don, I'm not sure what you're doing wiggling that guitar between your knees like that, but we are still doing the close-up of your face. Don, as this is a close-up of your face, it would probably look a little better if you moved your lips in time to the words on the recording. Oh, John, if you're going to do something like that, it might have been helpful if you had been doing it when the camera was on you, as we're shooting Willie's fiddle solo. It is a little distracting. And so the day went on. Three days later, John went back to Jeff Hassan and asked, what happens next? The processing, editing, neg cutting, dubbing and printing of the finished film, he was told. Is that expensive? It's about £600. Oh, said John, I thought we'd done the expensive bit with all the cameras and the lights and things like that. I don't know if Chris Francis got another £600. For once, Tom was quite astute. Chris certainly did not have another £600. And if you managed to borrow that much, Chris asked, when do I get my £500 back? In the end, there was nothing for it. John had to ask his parents. Mr and Mrs Otway had watched their one and only son go from disaster to disaster in search of a career he was not much good at and did not want to see him waste away his life on false dreams. If they were to lend him the money, would he do a deal with them? If the film did not work out and bring him great riches, would he once and for all get a proper job and earn a sensible living? The thinking behind this is not too difficult to grasp. Although £600 was a lot of money... It seemed a small amount to fork out if John was indeed going to settle down afterwards and do something reasonable with his life. It was a nice try, and had it worked, would have been money well spent. Now, Otway was able to finish the film. And on completion, one of the first people he proudly showed it to was Patricia Trewarvis. John, that's Pauline Thompson in the front row of the audience, she exploded. You promised me you'd never seen her since I caught you kissing her at Raven's Rock. And so she walked out on him. Eventually she would have the good sense to go out with and marry Paul Kendall. John had hired a 16mm projector to take the film around to show to people. I don't know if he did much of that, says Potter. I went round his house one day and he came rushing out screaming, I'm on telly, I'm on telly. He had worked out how to project the film onto his TV screen at home, which looked pretty good if he closed the curtains. <laughs> we spent the whole day in his living room just watching him on telly. 
Otway had actually booked several appointments with record companies to show his film, and they duly got visits from John, his film, and his projection equipment. As with his own record label, he was well before his time. Record companies had not yet got into the concept of video artists. The problem was, John says, it took me about half an hour to set up the projector and screen in an office. And when I'd done that, most of the offices were so small that the largest picture I could get on the screen was about 10 inches by 8, and at that size you couldn't focus it properly. I often asked them if they had a telly I could project it onto, but they always seemed to be saying, can you just play us a tape? Which meant there would have been no point in spending all that money on a film. Willie was not happy either. Ian King and Daryl De Silva were working hard on his behalf, trying to get Barrett a deal on his own. It did not help that whenever they rang up companies, it always seemed that John and his film had been there first. John did, however, manage to get the film shown between the bands at Friars one night. It also got shown to the Girl Guides. When John's mum, who had become a Girl Guide captain, borrowed the film to accompany a film about campfire cooking. Apart from these few showings, though, the film has remained in obscurity ever since. Sadly, John knew that having failed so badly, he would now have to get another job and fulfil his part of the bargain with his parents. His belief in his destiny, though, was still unshaken, and he took the last disaster as one of the downs that Mrs Clark had told him he would have before his eventual success. John applied for and got a job at CBS Records, packing LPs into boxes. He had noticed a while ago, in the local paper, a piece on Steve Ellis from the group Love Affair, who was being taken around the factory and shown how his records were made. Otway thought when he was a star, his factory tour would make a much better piece in the paper if he had already worked there beforehand. I could then be quoted saying, I know how hard these people work to make sure I have hits, and things like that, Otway says. Otway was very conscious of what he might have to say to the media once his career had taken off, and his bizarre processes came up with the strangest things. Chris, do you think you might manage to book me to play at some women's institutes? John asked one night. What on earth for? Chris replied, waiting for the punchline of a joke. I was thinking, when I do interviews later on, it will be far more fun to say things like, oh yes, I used to do that when I was playing the WYs. Much more interesting than saying, oh, I did that in the rock clubs, John replied. And John was serious. Chris had a hard time getting these bookings for Otway and did not see any reduction in the debt. But Chris was a good friend and John can now proudly say, when I played Princess Rizdra Wife and Home Club or one night after the Beetle Drive at Burndine Women's Institute... 